So, this... Let me just pause really quick. And I, I probably should have said this paragraph so ago, but it's just one of these things, man. When you get deep into the sermon, sometimes even the, <laughs> the obvious points become less obvious as you're trying to understand this in an integrative way, in a whole worldview way. But notice just how casually he can just say, after saying all of that, and all of that about Christians too, and all that about the Bible, and spending as much time showing errors apparently as um, explaining the Bible, even the first verse, where he just talks about obeying Christ himself and the salvation of Jesus being this, and then equating um, apostates of Christ as apostates from him. I, I, I maybe overly bring this up, but I can't enough. Jesus himself was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Mark 12. All right, let's read this. Uh, take a little uh, two-minute break here. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, meaning asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? The most important of all. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus said that. The most important commandment is monotheism. Um, there's more than monotheism to that command, but um, really it's essentially the same as the first commandment. But that's what he says. And then he says, and you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love that one God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There, ne- there is no other commandment greater than these. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This, hey, this scribe knows his Isaiah. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's how important the, the fundamental commandments are. Without which, if you don't have monotheism, you don't have these. If you don't have the one God loving just this some abstract entity we call God, that's no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the God of the Bible, and Jesus is the God of the Bible. And so he can say to this scribe, "For seeing that you're close, you're not far from the kingdom of God." That's how important it is. He says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. How dare! Joseph Smith, for someone who believes this text and truly, truly believes that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, and indeed God Himself, true God of true, truly God, truly God, light of light, God of God, um, disregard what Jesus Himself claims is the most important commandment, and yet He's talking about commandments. He's talking about obeying Jesus. He's talking. <laughs> so I just figure that's that's worth um, pausing on just to show. One example, and there could be many, of dealing with this kind of thing in this sermon. Okay, now let's go back to Joseph. There's, there's our break. All right, here we go. Let's keep going. So he says, be cautious, await. If a spirit of bitterness is in you, don't be in haste. Remember, 
you, if you if you make it to death, you, you can't commit the unpardonable sin. So if you're feeling this now, you know, like you're going to sin against Joseph or whatever, um, be careful, you know, wait. When you find a spirit that wants bloodshed, murder, the same is not of God, but is of the devil. Uh, Joseph, did you tell that to your friend, Porter Rockwell? So say you, that man is a sinner. Well, if he repents, he shall be forgiven. Out of the abundance of the heart, man speaks. The man that tells you words of life is the man that can save you. There you go. See, it's not just one line. It's not. How many times has he said something like this? The best men bring forth the best works. <laughs> the best men bring forth the best works. I warn you against all evil characters who sin against the Holy Ghost, for though there is no redemption for them in this world, nor in the world to come. What about after that? I could go back and trace every subject of interest concerning the relationship of man to God if I had time. I can enter into the mysteries. I can enter largely into the eternal worlds. For Jesus said, in my Father's kingdom, there are many mansions, etc. There is one glory of the moon, sun, stars, etc. What have we to console us in relation to our dead? We have reason to have the greatest hope and consolation for our dead of any people on earth. For we have aided them in the first principles. First. The first principles. These are the first principles. For we have seen them walk worthily on earth in our midst. See, worthiness. And sink asleep in the arms of Jesus. (laughs) Maybe based on their worthiness? I don't know. And those who have died in the faith are now in the celestial kingdom of God, meaning the LDS faith. Hence is the glory of the Son. You mourners have occasion to rejoice, for your friend has gone to wait until the perfection of the reunion and resurrection of the dead. At the resurrection of your friend in Felicity, he will go to the celestial glory, while there are many who die in the world who must wait many myriads of years before they can receive the like blessings. See, that's damnation. They have to wait. Your expectation and hope is far above what man can conceive. For why has God revealed it to us? I'm authorized to say to, to you, my friends, by the authority of the Holy Ghost, and in the name of the Lord, that you have no occasion to fear. Don't fear, don't worry. That's the message from (laughs) this prophet. For he has gone to the home of the just. King Follett. Don't mourn, don't weep. I know it by the testimony of the Holy Ghost that is within me. Holy Ghost that is within me. You may wait for your friends to come forth to meet you in eternity in the morn of the celestial world. Rejoice, O Israel. Your friends who have been murdered in the persecutions shall triumph gloriously in the celestial world. While their murderers shall welter and dwell in torment for years. We'd already defined torment. It's not actually hell. They'll have to realize, man, could have had better. Until they pay the uttermost farthing. I say this for the benefit of strangers. I leave the subject. Now we're getting toward the end here. I have a father, brothers, children, and friends who are gone into to eternity, to a world of spirits, soon to meet me. I bless, that's interesting. And that's another textual one where uh, that, that line Wilford, is, comes from Wilford Woodruff's uh, unofficial documentation of this sermon um, in his journal. and it's, I mean, Joseph could have said it for sure, but um, it is interesting. You wonder if that's 
a line put in there knowing that he's going to die here pretty soon. I bless those who have lost friends. They are only absent for a few moments, and the time will soon be gone. They are in the spirit. The trump will soon be blown, and then shall we hail our mothers, fathers, friends, all my wives. Just Sorry, I put that in there. And all. There will be no fear of mobs, etc. But all will have an eternity of felicity. A question about parents receiving their children. Will mothers have their children in eternity? Yes. Yes, exclamation point. Mothers, you will have your children, for they will have it without price. For their debt, (laughs) without price, for their debt of redemption is paid. Right? Uh, These children. There is no damnation awaiting them, for they are in the spirit. But as the child dies, so will it rise from the dead and be living in the burning of God and possessing all the intelligence of a God. (laughs) So... You thought baby Yoda was cool. Man, these baby Elohims are pretty awesome. It will never grow. It will never grow, this baby. It will be the child in its precise form as it was before it died in your arms. But it'll have the intelligence of a god. So there's little baby heavenly fathers out there. Children dwell and exercise power, throne upon throne, dominion upon dominion, in the same form just as you laid them down. Eternity is full of thrones upon which dwell thousands of children, reigning on thrones of glory, with not one cubit added to their stature. Wow. I will leave the subject here and make a few remarks upon baptism. The baptism of water with the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, attending it is necessary and inseparably connected. He must be born of water and the Spirit in order to get into the kingdom of God. Found in the German Bible is a text that bears me out, the same as the revelations which I have given and taught for 14 years about baptism. See, didn't change at all in baptism. I have the testimony to put, is baptism for the dead in um, the Book of Mormon? No, but he hasn't changed on baptism. I have the testimony to put in their teeth that my testimony has been true all the time. So it's always true based on where he's at at any given moment. You will find it in the Declaration of John the Baptist. I will read a text in German upon baptism. He reads from the German. John says, I will baptize you with water, but when Jesus Christ comes, who has the power and keys, he will administer the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Great God, now where is all the sectarian world? If this testimony is true, they are all damned as clearly as any anathema ever was. I know the text is true. I call upon all to say, I, shouts of I, I. right. Uh, Alexander Campbell, Restorationist Movement, the Campbellites, um, there are ties to, say, the Church of Christ, even today. Um, Sidney Rigdon, who he already mentioned earlier, and of course, um, whose daughter, Joseph Smith, around this time, is trying to get to marry him, and that meant more than just um, formality and connection, but actually a bearing, uh, well, the process by which you get children. (laughs) And uh, he wrote the Hamidus letter to manipulate her. And of course, we saw Nelson in the episode last year on Nelson's love of the gods. Uh, Nelson relies on this letter as this great example of Joseph Smith's wisdom on the love of God, not mentioning any of that context of trying to manipulate young women to, um, you know, let you do what Joseph Smith wants to do with you. Alexander Campbell, how are you going to save them with water? For John said his baptism was good for nothing without the baptism of Jesus Christ. 
Many talk of any baptism not being essential to salvation, but this would lay the foundation of their damnation. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of baptism, etc. There is one God. Wait, wait, what? One God? <laughs> what about your translation of the first verse of the Bible? One Father. Okay, maybe for you, right? But ever? You know, because he has a Father, he has a Father, he has a Father. I'm not sure what he means by that. One Jesus until the next one, right? Which might be you, Joseph? Well, our hope, one hope of our calling, one baptism. That is, all three baptisms make one. Yeah, if you can make heads or tails out of that line, um, you're smarter than I. I have the truth, and I am at the defiance of the world to contradict it. I have preached Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and German, and I have fulfilled all. I have fulfilled all. I'm not so big a fool as many have taken me for. The Germans know that I read the German correctly. Um, too bad James wasn't there to uh, check. Um, so, but I, I kind of doubt that's true, actually. <laughs> Hear it, all ye ends of the earth. I call upon all men, priests, sinners, and all. Repent, repent. Turn to God and obey the gospel. Of course, as he defines God and as he defines the gospel. And as he defines repent. For your religion won't save you. Only his will, right? And if you do not, you will be damned. But I do not say how long. See, there you go. You'll be damned. Damned. But who knows how long? You know. There have also been remarks made concerning all men being redeemed from hell, but those who sin against the Holy Ghost cannot be forgiven in this world or in the world to come, period. Once again, but what about after that? But I say that those who commit the unpardonable sin are doomed to nolam, ganolam, and must dwell in hell, worlds without end. They shall die the second death. Brigham Young will develop that doctrine. Um later on. As they concoct scenes of bloodshed in this world, so they shall rise to that resurrection, which is the lake of fire and brimstone, which of course is to be distinguished from the everlasting burnings that Joseph Smith is looking forward to, which I think ironically he probably is enjoying currently. But this fire and brimstone, he already mentioned, that's, a, that's the mind of man condemning itself, knowing what it could have been. Some shall rise to the everlasting burning of God. <laughs> I agree. For God dwells in everlasting burnings. Maybe his God does. And some shall rise to the damnation of their own filthiness, which is the same as the lake of fire and brimstone. Notice, the only thing that's not said is the orthodox, biblical, I would dare, dare say Jesus-defined definition of hell. I have intended my remarks to all to everybody. So he's, he says, I, I'm intending all of this for all. He wants everybody to hear it. To all the rich, the poor, bond, free, great and small, all my wives and your daughters that I want to marry as well. I'm, sorry, that's me. Um, and by the way, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. He, this is, there's only one other occasion he had his discourses report, reported by more than one clerk. So there's one time in all of the rest of Joseph Smith's work, that he has two scribes for an event. He has three officially for this one, and then Wilford Woodruff is doing it as well, right? I mean, this is, he, he not only prepared for this, he wanted this to be known. These are the public teachings of Joseph Smith in General Conference. Now he says, I have no enmity against any man. I love all men. I love you all, but hate your deeds. I am their best friend, and if persons miss miss their mark, it is their own fault. So if you miss the mark, that's on you. If I reprove a man and he hates me, he is a fool. For I love all men, especially these my brethren 
and sisters, especially those ones. I rejoice in hearing the testimony of my aged friend. You don't know me. So this is a famous line. You'll recognize it from a very famous book about Joseph. You don't know me. You never will. You never knew my heart. No man knows my history. I cannot do it. I shall never undertake it. I don't blame you for not believing my history. Well, thanks, Joseph, because I don't. If I had not experienced what I have, I could not have believed it myself. Yeah. I'm wondering if you experienced it at all, by which you, upon which you would believe it yourself. I never did harm any man. He's never harmed any man. I never did harm any man since I have been born in the world. Do you know Orson Pratt? I already mentioned the Pratts earlier. Um, right. Parley Pratt, Orson Pratt. Do you know how Orson Pratt learned about the plurality of wives? Joseph sent him on a mission to England and then was trying to marry his wife secretly. That's how Orson Pratt, a loyal follower of Joseph, was treated by this man. And he has the gall to say, I never did harm any man since I've been born in the world. Or how about this? This is a letter. This is a letter to a teenage girl, 17-year-old bride. Okay, Smith wrote this. We have this. It's in the Joseph Smith papers. He says this, I know it is the will of God. This is a note he's sending to two parents about their daughter. It is the will of God that you should comfort me now in this time of affliction, or not at all. Comfort him. Let's see what he means by this. I'll let you y'all uh, read between the lines here. Now is the time or never, but I have no need of saying any such thing to you, for I know the goodness of your hearts, the goodness of your hearts, you parents, and that you do the will of the Lord, which is, um, of course, what Joseph Smith wants here. When it is made known to you, the only thing to be careful of, this is the thing to be careful of, is to find out when Emma comes. To find out what Emma comes. Then you cannot be safe. But when she is not here, there's the most perfect safety. <laughs> that might be backwards, Joseph. I know. Only be careful to escape observation as much as possible. I know it is a heroic undertaking, but so much the greater friendship and the joy when I see you. The joy when I see you. I will tell you all my plans. I cannot write them on paper. Burn this letter as soon as you read it. Burn this. Destroy this evidence. <laughs> Keep it all looked up in your breasts. My life depends upon it. I think Emma won't come tonight. If she don't, don't fail to come tonight. That's, of course, to bring their daughter to uh, comfort uh, Joseph. But according to him, <laughs> he never did harm a man ever in his life. He's surely not a liar. I never did harm any man since I had been born in the world. My voice is always for peace. You know, forget the Mormon crusade in Missouri. I cannot lie down until my work is finished. I never think evil nor think anything to the harm of any fellow man. He never thinks evil. He's a really good person. When I am called to the trump and weighed in the balance, you will know me then. I add no more. God bless you. Amen. I probably shouldn't have said that last word, but Mormon. Amen. Okay, that is worth hearing. I hope um, if, if you've never had the chance to read it, you cannot understand Mormonism without this. So the, there's a lot of payoff here to, to really understand this sermon 
as a foundation piece when studying Mormonism. This is more important than, I would say, the Book of Mormon um, in terms of understanding theology proper. Um, even though the stories of the Book of Mormon will form LDS kids' imaginations, um, so it is still useful to study. But for theology proper, this is where you go uh, it, to, to start. Now, um, he, he, once again, he spoke two hours and 15 minutes. So he's finished about 5.30 p.m. And um, once again, the general conference continued. Um, so, but he, he was so tired on that he, the next day when he was supposed to speak again, he actually spoke very briefly, um, very briefly. So it says, uh, the next day, Monday, April 8th, 1844, um, 9.45 a.m., Joseph Smith took his seat requested the choir to sing a hymn. He called upon Brigham Young to read 1 Corinthians 15th chapter as his own lungs were injured. Um, and then he gives a short sermon, um, and then the conference will, of course, be concluded um, later on. I think the next day, I think it's the next day that it's concluded. Um, yes, Tuesday the 9th. So, um, I will point out, in Joseph's remarks, there is one interesting point. That, I mean, uh, instead of reading the whole thing, I've done a lot of reading. I hope, <laughs> I hope that's okay for everybody out there. But I will say this line from the next day. The whole of America, this is Joseph Smith, the whole of America is Zion itself from north to south. and is described by the prophets who declared that it is the Zion where the mountain of the Lord should be and that it should be the, in the center of the land. When elders take up and examine the old prophecies in the Bible, they will see it. Of course, that'll tie into the whole false uh, uh, prophecy about the temple and Missouri and all that. Anyway, so so that is that is that. Now, um, recorders. I think this is um, worth going into a little bit. How do we know this is what he said? Especially if we know we don't have it all. Uh, once again, the attention given to the details here. We have four scribes: Thomas Bullock. Um, which if you were to take like a standard text and see, you know, how much, what percentage is, is given to this text, um, or really, I guess the way to put it is the rough percentage of material each recorder, each scribe contributes to the composite text. Um, the main scribe will be Thomas Bullock. Um, and about 51%. Really, the whole structure of it we get from Bullock. William Clayton will also be a scribe. He's an, another private secretary of Joseph Smith. Um, Willard Richards is another private secretary and historian. He kept Joseph Smith's daily journal from 1842 to 1844. Wilford Woodruff is keeping it in his private journal. Um, and it's a very famous journal. It's come up of quite a few times uh, throughout the year, whether I've said it explicitly or not. And the story is, he is there writing it on pencil and paper. On the, he's writing it on the crown of his hat while standing in the congregation that day. So just get that visual. He's going to eventually, of course, become the fourth president of the church. Um, now, these notes are then, we don't have those notes, the pen and paper he mentions, but he's going to transfer them into a journal later that day, maybe, you know, maybe as distantly as two weeks later. And Woodruff will do summary statements, um, which is helpful on one hand, but also a little difficult in trying to amalgamate the whole text. Um, 
And, and, and I already, like I already said, Bullocks and Clayton's were both published as conference discourses officially in the church. And we have Bullock saying something like this, you know, that the greatest, best, most glorious five days that ever were to describe this conference. I mean, that this really made, um, yeah, a lot of um, waves. And the fact that in this time, with all that's going on in the context, that we have journals and letters uh, talking about this shows how um, impactful it, it, it was, it was considered to be. In fact, Wilford Woodruff, you know, when he's dedicating the Temple of Salt Lake in 1893, 49 years later, he said that only one occasion had he felt the Spirit of God more powerfully manifest than during the dedication of that temple. And that was when the Prophet Joseph delivered his last address. Uh, once again, the conference address. He still will have other addresses in the future, but um, we think he's referring to this King Follett discourse. The prophet in that instance stood on his feet three hours, and the Spirit of God was present like a flame of fire, like a flame of fire. And we have, um, for example, we have a, a journal entry from someone who is there. This is a journal entry. Um, Joseph Fielding is the name of the man. Um, I hope details like that uh, are okay for the listeners. If, if details, if that amount of detail bugs you, please let me know. <laughs> um, but I, I just want you guys to know where I'm getting it. So a man named Joseph Fielding, I, I assume is part of the Fielding family. Keep in mind, Joseph F. Smith and Fielding Smith. Joseph F. Smith's mom. Uh, is a Fielding, Mary Fielding. And I, I wonder if this is a relative. I, I'm not totally sure. But um, he writes this in his journal. Um, April 6th, 7th, 44. Our annual conference began and continued four days. Um, Joseph's discourse on the origin of man, the nature of God, and the resurrection was the most interesting matter of the time. Anyone that could not see in him the spirit of inspiration of God must be dark. Now, um, there, that's yeah. That's what he says. If you don't see how spiritual that is, you you must be dark. Um, he does. Then he's aware that people are saying he's a fallen prophet. Um, he then says, "I never felt more delighted with his discourse than at this time." They said at his oration, "It is the voice of a god, not of a man." Not, <laughs> no irony. Um, <laughs> I feel like we should play a game. Does anyone know where that comes from? Does anyone <laughs> does, does anyone know what verse that's from? <laughs> Acts twelve. Yes, you person in the back. Acts twelve. It's from Herod Agrippa the first. Herod Agrippa the first. He was angry. Let me read from Acts twelve. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Her on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, "The voice of a god and not of a man!" <laughs> wow. See the biblical literacy, yet the anti-biblical worldview. How that can just lead to these. It's like in the Book of Mormon, when they put in the mouth of God the mouth the words from Caiaphas, the high priest, in condemning Jesus. You know, Joseph does this as well. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So that's what uh, God uh, thinks of of that. But yeah, that's <laughs> there you go. Um 
yeah, I mean, we have people calling it the grand funeral sermon of King Follett. There's amazement, wonder, delight, edification, strength, glory. These are the descriptors. But I, I wanted to throw in um, some some more complicated responses. Um, so let me read a couple letters uh, that are interesting from the ones of Jacob Scott and Sarah Scott letter. One's a letter to both to family members. And um, one thing to keep in mind with these letters is that a lot of people didn't know consciously the position of the church on these things. When missionaries are going out and preaching, um, you know, the restoration and, uh, you know, showing, talking about the Book of Mormon, a lot of them had not much of an idea of the plurality of gods, the plural marriages that they were lying about, temple ordinances, the mysteries, things like that. Now, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that shocking that this stuff is going to accompany an extreme charismatic movement. But it, it was surprising to a lot of people. And it, it, to show that it's not all their fault, <laughs> though I, I don't think they're you know, purely innocent, Brigham Young, in his uh, October 1841 General Conference Address, makes explicit that the missionaries should teach the first principles and, quote, leaving the mysteries of the kingdom of God to be taught among the saints. So here's an emphasis on place. Um, that You know, we get them here, and then they learn the deeper doctrines. And this was common instruction. Um, we also have Hiram Smith letter um, in March 1844. So just a couple weeks before, uh, Hiram Smith has a letter in the Times and Seasons, a church publication, in which he says, beware what you teach. Exclamation point. Beware what you teach this to the elders, for the mysteries of God are not given to all men. Now, what's interesting is I, I went, uh, th- we, we just went through King Follett, and it's very clear Smith is not saying this is mystery anymore. Um, so what does Hiram have in mind here? Um, kind of interesting. So there was definitely more than even what Joseph taught, I think. So he says, let the mysteries alone until by and by, until by and by. So, um, now, that's the context in which we're, we're getting a little, a couple more complicated uh, versions. So, here's one example. There are many things connected with the subject which I am not at liberty to communicate to you where you are living. See that? So, there's the emphasis on place that this person is reflecting in his letter to, to a family member. Um, let's see. Um, Therefore, beware how you treat the subject, for no doubt it is of God. So he still wants to believe. Other revelations intimately connected with this momentous dispensation and which are almost ready to unfold themselves to us. I cannot communicate to you at present, although I know them in part, for you could not bear them now. See that? You can't. You're not, you're not ready yet. If you were living with the church, your spiritual advantages would be much greater than they are now. But to inform you of all that is made known to the church here, it would be go broad from you and likely cause you much persecution. So that's his justification for that. Um, here's another one uh, from someone struggling. This is someone writing to their mother. Mother, you think you have trials, but I can tell you there is nothing there to try your faith. I mean, comparatively speaking, I never fully understood the place in the Holy Writ where the Lord says he will have a tried people until I came here with the church. Sometimes I almost fear that I shall give up, but by the help of the Lord, I mean to endure to the end. You know little concerning the church, I can assure you. 
I think that if the saints were as wise before they start as after they get here, many would not have faith enough to come. Isn't that interesting? A word to the wise is sufficient. Dear mother, pray for me that I may be of the household of faith. So she still wants to believe, but you know this seems pretty radical to her. And then we also have the reaction um, from people who are completely opposed to this, uh, both commentators outside and commentators that used to be within the church. Um, so, you know, I guess properly, quote-unquote, anti-Mormon, and then what? People who want to reform Mormonism think Joseph is a fallen prophet. For example, the, I already mentioned this earlier, um, the Nauvoo Expositor is, the print, is printed and is aware of these teachings, It has only a single edition. Joseph Smith is eventually going to order this destroyed, the printing press, and it's for that reason that he's arrested and taken to Carthage jail where he will be shot. Well, this, um, it's just fascinating that this novel, if you actually read what was printed in it, it actually states that the religion of Smith, as originally taught by him, was true. So these are not, I mean, I, I don't agree with that. Um, but that it's falling away due to polygamy and other vicious principles, um, such as, quote-unquote, the plurality of gods and the notion man could become a god. These are false and damnable. Um, so so there you go. Um, now, let's see here. What else do I want to cover here? Some other quotes of people who opposed it. This was interesting um, example. The, one description, one of the most infamous sermons of blasphemy ever preached from the pulpit. Um, the more high-handed, degrading, infamous in- attempt in blasphemy never was uttered by mortal tongue. <laughs> That's a man named Granville Hedrick. Um, there, there's someone who was writing later who's also kind of charismatic-y. Um, he supposedly quotes what the Spirit taught him, I think is what's going on in this quotation, um, that Joseph Smith, in that case, was, was taught a worse doctrine than the devil did in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that that's a line that's a quotation, I guess, of what he's being taught. This is his comment on that: the devil only taught that men should be as gods, but Joseph taught that men should be gods. Kind of interesting. Interesting. So um, now, now, what's the publication history of this? I, I think this is useful because some will point out one issue um, during one period. Um, and use it as an excuse to say, well, this isn't canon or whatever, whatever they say now. Um, That's not doctrine or whatever. Um, (laughs) Well, this is before the end of 1844. It's printed, published at least three times. By the end of the next year, uh, it's printed again. We're talking church publications, Times and Seasons, Millennial Start. John Taylor has a pamphlet, um, widely read in 1844. and once again, at a time when only five other of Joseph Smith's discourses had been printed by the church. Um, and so before 1900, it keeps going five times more at least. And these are at least because there might have been others. Um, like I think I'm aware of one that maybe didn't make this list, but I'm not sure. Um, so before 1900, five times more at least. Published more times in the 20th century than in the 19th. Um, since 1900, at least 11 different publications. As recently as the April and May ensign of 1971, it was printed. 
Um, I mean, we have an improvement era, private publications, BH Roberts, it's TPJS, um, all these things, right? Discourses, the Prophet Joseph Smith, Messages of the First Presidency. It's also in um, Volume 6 of the Journal of Discourses. Of course, that would have been in the before 1901. So big deal. Now, what's, what's the one? B.H. Uh, Roberts compiles the history of the church. This is so, it's kind of weird. I want to learn more about it. I know there's more work that's been done on it. I just didn't get to it uh, in preparation for this. We've mentioned who B.H. Roberts is. I hope I don't need to go into too much explanation. He's a big deal. He was a general authority, but also maybe the greatest academic mind that was a general authority ever. Does this huge history of the church, several volumes. In volume six, where he documents the entire general conference, um, of which uh, King Follett Discourse was a part, the, when he published this in 1912, pages 302 to 317 are missing. So if you have a first edition history of the church, right where the King Follett Discourse would be, it's missing. And it's not like they changed the page numbers. It was a, it already, it already it, the pages 302, 317, they're just gone. And then when the second edition is published in 1950, they're reinserted, just the same pages, 302 to 317. And some have taken this to mean, and, and perhaps this is correct, that some brethren had become suspicious of this of the, the King Follett Discourse on authenticity of some doctrine. Perhaps it was the baby Yodas, I mean the baby Elohim's part or something like that. Maybe some of the that didn't aren't as emphasized anymore, though I think culturally it still functions the same way. If you if you know LDS and how they view children that die before the age of accountability, um, it could be an accuracy of text issue. Although I just think that's that's a frankly a shallow reason. Um, I mean, three of these scribes are writing as Joseph is speaking. Uh, sorry, all four. Are and there's not evidence uh, because Wilfred Woodruff is too. But even if Wilfred Woodruff is paraphrasing parts later, um, certainly some of it is at the same time. There's no evidence that there's copying or expanding based on others. Uh, I mean, it is um, one scholar says of all the speeches given by Joseph Smith, this one has the greatest contemporary manuscript support. <laughs> so, so it's not a good reason, but. You could see, once again, how do LDS treat the Bible? It's If they don't like what it says, it must not be translated right. Or if it's in English, you can't have that excuse. So it's you know, transmitted right. Um, and so there might have been some suspicion of it. And, and keep in mind, at that time, in 1912, what you're, this is the time of redefining the doctrinal image of the church. And so... A lot of things are, you know, cats being put back in the bag. Got to put the cat back in the bag. And perhaps it, it was just um, some thinking, well, should we be held accountable? You know, where's the line that we draw here? Um, so we have a little bit of evidence of that. Um, but it's, I mean, it's still pretty vague. Some of some of the quotes even given as evidence of that. I wonder if they're just covering their bases and, you know, who knows what they really think. Um, but I think that the typical way it's viewed now is that's deep and awesome, you know. <laughs> um, now, when dealing with Christians or other religious groups um, in which they don't want to be held accountable or they might have this higher, lower law thing or they don't think you're ready to learn it or things like that, they may have a different tune. But um, 
if I'm in a doctrine, if when I was in it, if I was having a doctrinal conversation about Mormonism with fellow Mormons, King Follett discourse was um, functioned the way the Bible does for Christians. Uh, function that way, even if not consciously. Here's this quote. This is George Q. Cannon, who is a general authority we have brought up several times. I think this is worth stating to show it's not just a Joseph Fielding journal entry in which it's um, there's almost divine language associated with Joseph Smith's giving of this. His address ceased to be a mere eulogy of an individual and became a revelation of eternal truths concerning the glories of immortality. The prophet seemed to rise above the world. It was as if the light of heaven already encircled his physical being. Those who hear that sermon may never forget its power. Those who read it today think it was an exhibition of superhuman power and eloquence. Now, in some of the publication history, um, there's something called, and I'm just saying this so you all know, this is good good to know, um, if you want to know your history here. There was an amalgamation 11 years later in 1855 um, by Jonathan Grimshaw, and it's called the Grimshaw Amalgamation. It's eventually published in 1857, and it's published July 8th, 1857 in the Deseret Weekly News. And this one was the, was one of the standards of this sermon until this BYU Studies 1978 one that is the one I read from, the newly amalgamated text. The reason it's not trusted as much anymore it, it, it's, is partly due to a better understanding of how to get at an original text. Um, but it's also, um, I, I think this is worth saying. I didn't see anyone interact with this, and so I want to put this here um, because it's something to think about. It, it does include added words that don't have manuscript authority to maybe help explain things like that. Uh, uh, even Joseph Fielding Smith and his teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, TPJS, uh, does this on one that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then it also deleted some with, with manuscript authority. It didn't include all of it. But I will say this. There's one little part that says this. It was, quote, carefully revised and compared by George A. Smith, General Authority, and Thomas Bullock, um, who was one of the scribes, uh, read in Council Sunday, 18th November, 1855, and carefully revised by President Brigham Young. I think that's an interesting point to bring up when it comes to Mormon authority and epistemology. And uh, perhaps based on Mormon um, epistemology, based on Mormon canon claims, if Brigham Young is the one revising it, maybe it is an authority. Uh, just a thought. And George A. Smith is also a um, member of the Quorum of the Twelve uh, at the time. So I, uh, I didn't get to it this time, but it would be interesting to compare the recent amalgamation with the Grimshaw amalgamation. And maybe even those differences are things Brigham Young really wanted emphasized. There's a little bit of evidence for that. Now it's impact. Um, this is unparalleled, uh, I would say, in terms of its doctrinal significance. And um, it did just kind of create this, uh, it's like a depth charge. And Mormon theology will never be the same. And I think... It's it's let's let's go over just a little bit of this and then we'll wrap it up wrap it up here. Uh, there are two lists that 
I found from LDS scholars and apologists of things they outlined as why this was important doctrinally. Um, and let me, I want to focus on this second one, but this will be kind of a review. This is Robert Millet. Number one, God was once a man and dwelt on an earth like we do. Number two, men and women can become like God, that is, become gods. Three, to create is actually to organize. So it's not ex nihilo. It's to form and organize out of pre-existing materials. Four, pre-mortal council. There's a council of gods, right, before the foundation of this world or set of worlds in which particular individuals are given certain missions in regard to uh, this round of existence. Five, mind of men is co-eternal with God. Man is a self-existent being like God. Six, our greatest responsibility is to seek out the dead. Seven, the unforgivable sin against the Holy Ghost won't be forgiven in this world or the next. What about after? Eight, little children who die before the age of accountability will be saved in the celestial kingdom, and worthy parents will have the opportunity to raise them. That's an interesting interpretation of what I read. Um, what Joseph Smith actually said. But that is how a modern LDS apologist will interpret the big takeaway from that, which is kind of interesting as well. Now, uh, Van Hale, who's often really not my favorite, but he does have an article I did consult in terms of the doctrinal impact. And he, he said these four doctrines or concepts are of primary importance. One, men can become gods. Two, there exist many gods. Three, the gods exist one above another innumerably. And four, God was once a, as man now is, or as man now is, God once was, right? God had not always been a God, having once existed as a man, meaning that level, that station at that time. And then what he does is he goes through each four, and I think he's trying to show earlier counterparts to show it's not a de novo. This isn't Joseph Smith being radically new. And honestly, I think some of his evidence is not good. So some of it, I think, is people much later remembering Joseph Smith's Nauvoo-era theology earlier than it was actually there. That being said, I do think that the seeds often are. Um, Maybe if they're less emphasized, I do think eventually... Um, they do come to fruition. I think a great example of this is um, in DNC, I think it's 121. And uh, keep in mind that, interestingly enough, this letter that Joseph wrote, in the first printing of it, it didn't include this uh, section, um, showing that there may have been a reticence to include it. Um, So this is Joseph writing a letter from... um, Liberty Jail, I think it is. Let me just make sure. Yeah, Liberty Jail, Liberty, Missouri, March 20th, 1839. Let me read these verses. That um, which our forefathers have awaited with anxious expectation to be revealed in the last times, which their minds were pointed to by the angels as held in reserve for the fullness of their glory. A time to come in which nothing shall be withheld, whether there be one God or many gods, they shall be manifest. (laughs) Why are you even asking that, right? This is 1839. Wait, that's a question? A time to come in which we'll know whether there be one God or many gods? 
All thrones and dominions, principalities and powers shall be revealed and set forth upon all who have endured valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, if there be bounds set to the heavens, or to the seas, or to the dry land, or to the sun, moon, stars, all the times of the revolutions, all the appointed days, months, years, etc., etc., skipping ahead, according to that which was ordained in the midst of the counsel of the eternal God of all other gods before this world was. So, I do think, like, there are examples such as that one, that these four things, men can become gods, there exist many gods, they exist innumerably one above another, and God was once a man, as, you know, um, God was once as man now is. Yeah, I do think there's some, but I do also think he's over-reading the continuity. We can overread the discontinuity, but I think he's overreading the continuity. I don't think it's good evidence if years and years and years later, they're remembering an event and theologizing about it earlier. Um, it's possible, it's just to me that's not as convincing, especially when we have such counter-evidence, uh, such as the lectures on faith, which he does, he does mention that. It's just, um, anyway, I just want to point that out. That's going to be out there when, if you interact with this stuff. Um, so, let's see here. Doctrinal impact. Let's hear some, some ways that uh, LDS apologists have talked about this that it took more private mysteries and it openly published them to the church in general and to the world, right? Um, one, one scholar says, uh, it's hard to know, but, quote, most saints may have been virtually unfamiliar with some of these doctrines. So what was an attitude of uncertainty like what we just read in DNC 121, where it's a little more speculative, it's not as clear, though it's clear it's in question, um, it becomes an open certainty in the King Follow discourse. It becomes these doctrines become common subjects, right? Um, the following the KFD, the doctrine of the plurality of gods was no more a matter of speculation. One uh, one guy says to be approached with caution. Joseph claimed that this is the doctrine, right, and that it's eternal truth. And then, of course, he lays his prophetic claims on the line for it. And does he stop after this? No. Um, there's uh, we're we're going to cover uh, Brendan and I are going to cover his his what was likely his last public sermon, which Orson Pratt will publish as the Mormon Creed on June sixteenth. He's going to die let's see eleven days later, uh, where he preaches very similar things. Um, so this is you know this is going to be a major topic. Uh, Van Hale he counted three. Um, Articles in the Times and Seasons, four times another printed matter, one sermon. Phineas Young gave a sermon on the plurality of gods in April of 1845. One poem and song by John Taylor in December 1844. I mean, this is this becomes the new standard. And this is his conclusion. I, I thought this was worth including. Were it not for the King Folly Discourse, the doctrine of the plurality of gods may have remained obscure among the purported teachings of Joseph, of which his um, sanction is yet uncertain. The doctrinal impact of Joseph's canonization of the doctrine of the plurality of gods in the King Folly Discourse must be considered the most significant aspect of the sermon. Of the sermon. So, and then what you'll encounter out there as well is LDS apologetics on, say, Genesis, you know, his view of Genesis in saying, in pointing out liberal scholarship of, you know, since Velhausen and, and beyond, um, trying to show, oh, yeah, the original Israelites would have been polytheistic and look at this and divine counsel stuff. And I'm sure a lot of you have interacted with that. We'll have to deal with that another time. Creation ex nihilo, that was so late, and et cetera, et cetera. 
So, um, Fawn Brody um, mentions it. This is how she covers it. That this is, quote, the first time he proclaimed in a unified discourse the themes that he had been inculcating in fragments and frequently in secret to his most favored saints. The glory of knowledge, the multiplicity of gods, the eternal progression of the human soul. And when he almost finished, an exaltation of spirit that motivates a great sermon was exhausting itself. He paused and in a wanton moment of self-searching said with a kind of wonder, you don't know me, right? You don't know man knows my history, which is, of course, the name of her book. Even um, some of the attention it gets um, outside of Mormonism might not be as well known to some of the Christian listeners. Uh, Harold Bloom, uh, who is a Shakespeare scholar, I believe at Yale, um, a literary scholar, he calls this sermon um, one of the truly remarkable sermons ever preached in America. And... um, (laughs) That's he his discussion of the religion making imagination of Joseph Smith is one of the more interesting I think. Now this book, of course, loves the Gnosticism and loves the Kabbalah and things like that. So it's it's not um, a book for everybody. That being said, I do think he sees into the core, sees into the core of the of the Mormon the deeper Mormon conception. And where this is headed, and he's he's aware of Orson Pratt and Brigham Young's Michael God and all that. Let me just read one line to give you a sense of this. Um, let's see here. We can find the central formulations of Smith's religion-making imagination in the extraordinary sequence of DNC that begins with baptisms for the dead in 127, section 127 and 128, proceeds then to the resurrection of the body in 129, and to the tangibility of the bodies of the Father and the Son in 130. Directly after this, in section 131, the new and everlasting covenant of marriage is stated to be followed by the most remarkable of all the prophets' revelations. This is an agnostic Jew saying this. The most remarkable uh, being the famous section 132, where the essentials for the attainment of godhood lead on directly to a plurality of wives. Uh, Here's where it starts to get even more interesting. Historians, both Mormon and Gentile, have traced the long... That's pretty funny for a Jew to say. Mormon and Gentile have traced the long and subtle evolution of the prophet's concept of plural marriage from 1831 through the dictation of section 132 in July 12th, on July 12th, 1843. This evolution contains within it Joseph Smith's most original speculation, which even he dared not formulate overtly. If Smith's God was an exalted man of flesh and bone and the literal father of Jesus and the begetter of intelligences in many spheres, then was this God not also a polygamist? The problem is not so much one of distinguishing the Mormon God from Adam, a distinction not quite made by Brigham Young, but rather that of distinguishing God from what a theomorphic leader like Young might yet progress to be. It is the audacity of Smith's genius that he would never quite make that distinction. So, (laughs) pretty, pretty interesting. Um, pretty interesting stuff. This is a chap. Uh, this book is one that I think would be fun to go through with Brendan sometime. Okay, so what have we covered? We set the scene. I hope that we could bring the, you know, you the listener, um, to try to imagine having been there. We have walked through the sermon. And then we have discussed whether this we can trust the text of the sermon as genuinely Joseph Smith, 
and then we have discussed its doctrinal impact. And of course, anybody that is aware of, you know, um, Lorenzo Snow's couplet, as a man now is, God once was, as God, as God now is, man may be or may become, we'll see that that is really a great summary of what is ultimately Smith's theology in the King Follett Discourse, other places as well, but in the King Follett Discourse. In fact, of course, this is one of these later recollections, but to end, Lorenzo Snow, he said he encountered this doctrine in um, 1835 or 1836, I can't remember which, but this was two weeks prior to his baptism, whenever that was, and that will determine which year it was. He was at a Patriarchal Blessings meeting in Kirtland, Ohio, when he was told by Joseph Smith's dad, so Lorenzo Snow says he learned this first from his dad. Interesting. And he says, this is Joseph Smith Sr. supposedly, you will become as great as you can possibly wish, even as great as God. And you cannot wish to be greater. And he said that um, this uh, was approaching blasphemy. In fact, uh, Lorenzo Snow called it a dark parable. And then in 1840, he had this charismatic experiential moment Right, this quote-unquote born-again moment, right? The eyes of his understanding were opened, and that's when he formed this couplet. And so, this is, this is Mormonism 101, first principles of Mormonism. So I hope that was worth your time, and um, please uh, let us know if you want us to cover anything in more depth or if I pass through by something, pass through something a little too quickly. And uh, we can slow down and go through this again because this, honestly, is worth coming back to to truly understand Mormonism. And you've been listening to Distinctive Christianity where we compare sermons such as the King Follow Discourse with, say, the Nicene Creed and see, ultimately, which one is faithful to what all of the Bible teaches. 